are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Before we go to prayer this morning, I would ask you um, to please remember the family of Julia Delarocco. Her father in Poland passed away yesterday very unexpectedly. Julia is flying to Poland today to be with family. Please remember her family. Let's pray together. Blessed are you, O Lord, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God and praise your glorious name. In your mercy, accept our praise this morning. Triune God, we praise and thank you for Jesus, who is our model in humility. Though he was fully God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and was born one of us. In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Make us more willing to take Jesus' example and to behave with becoming humility to your glory. God of all comfort, we ask for your presence today with all those who suffer and who grieve things spoken and unspoken. We especially remember Julia and her family in this sudden loss. Jesus, we pray for our presence in this community. We pray for FIAC as it begins, for our immigrant neighbors who will come to learn. Bless each one and bless each volunteer and leader and give them an excellence in teaching and the words to say to share your truth with grace and humility. We pray for Awana as it begins, for excellence in programming and teaching, for strength and patience for each leader. We pray for the children who will attend, that God's truth will be planted deep in their hearts and be held strong against the inevitable storms and temptations of this life. Bless our fall programming, our Bible studies, the events, and the Sunday classes. Lord, inhabit all these so that they are never empty learning, but are truly the living and active sword of your word for the transformation of our lives. Holy Spirit, Teach us as we hear your word this morning, and bless Jeff as he teaches. Amen. 
Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 1086 of the black-covered Bibles under the seat in front of you or on page 34 of your Acts booklet. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's Word. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Hey, just a quick recap of where we are in the book of Acts, which is Luke's inspired story of how God is working through the early church. The big picture to keep in mind, of course, is Jesus is the promised Savior who gave his life in our place to reconcile us to God. And he rose from the dead to defeat sin and death and show that he is actually the promised Lord and Savior So he has now poured out his spirit on his followers as he promised to empower them, to empower us for living a new kind of life and sharing the message of his sacrifice for us and his resurrection power. And in our current section in the book of Acts that we're looking at now from chapters 3 to chapter 8, Luke has been going back and forth showing this series of opposition to the message and the movement of Jesus from the outside, and then tensions and challenges within the church and how the church responds to those. Last week, Pastor Joey took us through this section in chapter 5, where we saw another external threat, how the apostles are preaching the gospel, telling people that he, uh, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and how Uh, The religious leaders are threatened by that. They put them on trial. They beat them. They tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they praise God for being counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. And now in the passage we're looking at today, Luke pivots back to an internal tension, a, a challenge in the form of a problem that becomes an opportunity for growth. So let's get into our passage for today in Acts chapter 6. My wife, Amelia, and I had moved to St. Louis in 1996 after I left a career in marketing management to follow a calling of God into vocational ministry. 
there were a lot of big transitions involved in that. Uh, you could probably imagine, right? Moving to a new city, having to find a new church community, uh, figuring out uh, how we're going to build relationships, going from a home to an apartment on campus, and uh, we entered seminary with one and a half kids, and we left with three, uh, which we discovered was kind of a common pattern for whatever reason. Uh, we got connected at uh, an evangelical free church in St. Louis that turned into a role as an adult ministries pastor, and in all that change and transition, uh, it finally felt like, okay, now, now like life is settled, and we kind of know what to expect. Then in 2002, Amelia told me that she was expecting another baby. This was a surprise, not because I was unaware of the process or anything, but uh, at that point, our kids were eight and six and four, okay? Uh, they were all sleeping through the night. Uh, any of you who have raised kids know that the day that your youngest stops needing diaper changes is like you celebrate it every year after that, right? We had a three-bedroom home, and now we're going to have four kids. And Amelia and I, were not giving up our room. So where are we going to put them all? All this tension and, and challenge and, and growth was a problem that was also an opportunity. And what we're going to see is something similar in the passage today that we're looking at, that God grows his church as we respond to needs. God grows his church as we respond to needs. Now, the church, the people of God, is growing, as Luke tells us, which is good. But it also creates problems, right? They're discovering they have some blind spots. There, there are now people who are being brought into the kingdom of God with different language and culture and background. And how God's people see others and decide what they do and whether or not they can love them is an issue not just for believers back then, but for us as well, for the church in every age. It's a challenge and an opportunity for each one of us here. And as we work through these verses, there's a progression that Luke takes us through in four movements. There's the problem in verse 1, and then a solution in verses 2 to 4, and then in verses 5 to 6, the implementation, and in verse 7, the outcome, the impact. And we're going to see how each of those movements, each of those elements is an opportunity for growth that speaks to us. Because God grows his church as we respond to needs. So let's jump in. First of all, the, the problem in verse 1. Here again, Luke tells us that the church is growing in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, that's great, right? That's, a, that's good, but as the church grows, there are growing pains. As the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, just a, a little bit of clarification here. The word Hellenist essentially just means Greek-speaking or kind of oriented towards Greek culture. Remember, at this point in the story, there, there really are basically almost no Gentile believers. These are all Jewish followers of God who have come to faith in Jesus. And, and so the church is monoethnic, 
But as we'll see, it's multicultural. Because a Hellenist is a Greek-speaking Jewish believer who has been shaped by the Greco-Roman culture, the, the large dominant culture of the day. And the Jews who grew up and lived in Jerusalem and Galilee are what Luke here is calling the Hebrews, Jews who spoke Aramaic, whose sort of natural cultural environment was the Holy Land. Now, these Hellenists had likely migrated to Palestine because Jerusalem was considered, was, of course, the center of Jewish life. It was the holy city. And so many Jewish people found it desirable to move to Jerusalem, especially as they were thinking of nearing the end of their lives, and they would want to be buried in the Holy Land. But then, just as now, women tended to outlive men. And so the result is that many of the widows living in Jerusalem were these Greek-speaking Jews, these Hellenists, who'd come from other parts of the Roman Empire. So they are a cultural minority in the church. And if you were a widow in biblical times, you didn't have a retirement account, you didn't have a 401k, there's no social security, your livelihood depended on your extended family. So a Jewish widow who came to faith in Jesus Christ was likely to be divorced or discounted, ignored by her extended family. And then you put on top of that these Greek-speaking Jewish widows might not have even had extended families in the area at all. So this is a significant challenge. There's differences in culture, differences in language, differences in practice and how you look at the world. And that's always, even in our day, of course, a basis for rivalry and division and misunderstanding and conflict. And now put yourselves in the shoes of maybe one of those Greek-speaking widows, and you can see the difficult reality that they're facing. So as food is being distributed, gathered food and money shared for those who are in need among the congregation, the Greek-speaking believers complained that their widows were being overlooked in that distribution. There's an inequity, there's an injustice here. Uh, maybe some of you could relate to that. If you've ever been, uh, you know, the, the new person in your workplace or the new kid in school and you're looking around and everyone already knows everyone else, right? And you're sort of on the outside figuring out how do I get in and how do I get into that group? And uh, boy, they all know each other already and you're on the outside looking in. That was the case for these people, not just in terms of relationships, but their community is saying, we're not being taken care of. And the commentators point out that this word complaint here in verse 1 is the same one that's used in the Old Testament to describe the Israelites grumbling or complaining against Moses in the wilderness. A complaining and grumbling spirit has the potential, obviously, to just amplify the, the division. And it's easy for us sometimes to respond to the way that people complain as a way of ignoring what they're actually saying. Anyone ever notice that? Maybe not in yourself, of course, but in others. Like, well, I don't like the way they said that. Or, boy, that was sarcastic. Or, man, I didn't like the tone of voice there. And, and then that becomes the issue instead of the actual issue. 
But these people focus on the actual issue. The real issue here is a violation of God's love and care for the vulnerable. And that's the need that God's people have to respond to here, that people who have been hurt and overlooked need to be seen and heard. People who've been hurt and overlooked need to be seen and heard and understood. Because doing life together is what God intends for his people. But that increases the likelihood of complicated relationships, right? Because we're going to rub elbows with people who see differently and think differently and prioritize things differently. If, if you want a life without complicated relationships, just stay at home and binge watch Netflix or play games on your phone, right? That raises a question for me, for us. Do I see changes and challenges as problems to be maybe ignored or endured or as opportunities to grow? If God is really in charge, if he's really working all things for our good, then changes and challenges are not just interruptions to my plans. People's needs are not annoyances just to get on the other side of. They are what God is doing. And when the apostles become aware of this complaint about the inequity in the care for these Greek-speaking widows, they know that this is no small thing. It's the kind of thing that could tear the church apart. That's the problem. But God grows his church as we respond to needs. And so the solution that God prompts these apostles to take is in verses 2 to 4. The solution. Look, look in verse 2. They, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we might hear that initially as though the apostles are saying like, you know, guys, we've got this really important ministry over here. And we can't stop doing the, the really significant stuff just to wait on tables. But that is not what's going on here, as, as we'll see in a minute. And, and Luke makes that clear, especially in the, in the Greek that he was writing in. The reality is, by this point, remember now, there are thousands upon thousands of followers of Jesus in this community in Jerusalem. And caring for the needy was a significant challenge. And making sure that people were taken care of was hugely important, as becomes evident here. So they say, therefore, in verse 3, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, appointing seven men to oversee a task this big suggests, uh, I think, they're looking for people who have a gift of administration. There's no way they're going to be able to do all this work themselves for caring for perhaps thousands of people. Now, seven women could have probably done the whole thing by themselves. But in this society, men were looked at, expected to lead and be the protectors and providers. And, and that's the pattern, the cultural pattern that they're reflecting here. These seven men were to be chosen to serve tables so that the apostles could continue to devote themselves to the word and to prayer, they say. And, and what is that? 
They're talking about preaching the gospel to an unbelieving world. They're, they're talking about the, the teaching of God's word through the scriptures to help people understand and live out what God has called them to do. And especially for these literal apostles, it's the, the revelation given by the Holy Spirit to them that would be recorded in what we now call the New Testament. The prayer and the word are the foundational ministries for these responsibilities. And, and it's a reminder that the church needs those apostles, needed those apostles especially to focus on what God had called them to do. The church needs those people to actually do what God has called them to do, to focus on the word and prayer. Because the gospel is making an impact in people's lives. I mean, thousands of people are, are coming to faith in Christ, but there's also threats and opposition. And you could maybe understand the temptation to say, like, you know, getting beaten up and thrown in prison and having our lives threatened is a little overwhelming. You know, maybe we could just cool it. It, it might be actually maybe a little easier, maybe more desirable to back off from calling people to repent and trust in Jesus and instead just to focus on the, the practical realities of caring for needs in the congregation. Because look at all the needs in front of us. And we know that God loves and cares for the weak and the vulnerable, for widows and orphans. Maybe we should just focus on that because really... Nobody beats you up and throws you in jail for caring for the poor, right? I mean, that would be an easy path to fall into for them. But that's not the response that they get. And, and I just want to clarify, of course, nobody here is an apostle. That was a unique role in the early church who were the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and who testified to him and were inspired to write this word for us. But it is a reminder for us, not just for pastors, not just for church leaders, but for all of us, that, that we need people in the church whose ministry is in word and in prayer. They're highlighting this as, as foundational for the work and the, the outworking of the gospel. Just like here at Faith Church, the elders gather regularly to, to pray for this congregation. We meet with people to pray over them. We have people who gather on Wednesday nights to pray for needs in the congregation and in the community. But the significant thing here as well is the recognition that the apostles are not drawing a, creating a hierarchy of ministry. The, the two phrases in focus in this passage use the same word for both service and ministry. Serving tables in verse 2 and ministry in the word in verse 4 are the same word. It's diakoneo. It means service. They are both expressions of ministry and God working through his people. And this is not the creation of, of deacons as a formal role in the early church. But it's saying there, there's just different kinds of ministry in the body. And one is not more important or better or more significant than the other. Note the qualifications for these people. Again, I mean, it, it sounds like the qualifications that God gives for any leader in his church, right? Men who are 
full of the Spirit and have a good reputation and are full of wisdom. I mean, that's kind of a shorthand for people who ought to be directing the, the ministry of the church, not just a certain kind of you know, vocational pastor, for example. It's also interesting to notice that the qualifications for this ministry of caring for the Greek widows who have been overlooked are not cultural identifiers, right? He's not saying appoint seven Greek-speaking people to this ministry to make sure that they're taken care of. It's not, a, it's not an inversion of power dynamics to say, like, you know, the people who have been victimized, now they get to be on top and dominate the others. It, it means they're full of wisdom and the Spirit, and they have a good reputation, so they're not going to be driven by power dynamics and cultural identifiers. They're, they're going to be led by the Spirit to discern what is good and what is needed and respond appropriately. And so what's going on here is that the word of God and prayer are foundational, but just as important is the love and the care for others in living out God's character. Because that's what God is like. He has a heart of compassion for the weak and the needy and the vulnerable and those who tend to get overlooked. James, another apostle, writes later, Religion that is pure and undefiled before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world, to not love power, to not love money, but to meet needs as God enables us. Because God loves the downcast and the vulnerable, and that means we do too as his children. Because God grows his church as we respond to needs. That's the problem and the solution given by the Holy Spirit. So look at the implementation in verses 5 and 6. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. So there's one Gentile proselyte there. And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. The congregation brings these men before the apostles. They pray, they lay hands on them. It's signifying the apostles' identification with them, their approval and their blessing and their commissioning with them. It's about handing off the responsibility or the assignment. We're entrusting it to you. That's what it means to ordain. And this isn't creating, you know, some separation between lay people and, and clergy. We are ordained. We are all called and ordained and entrusted by God with this work that he's called us to do. And one of the needs here is this, that, the, that people need to help solve the problems that they see and use the gifts that God has given them. That's what's going on here. There's a need in the church for the ministry to expand by God, by the leaders handing off that ministry to the people who can see the problem and be part of addressing it. Look at what's going on here. There's, there's a sensitivity to hear and receive criticism. There's a self-awareness among, among the apostles to know their own limits and to focus on exercising their own gifts and, and a wisdom to balance 
competing goods between different kinds of ministry. There's a flexibility to be open to new needs and to develop new structures and, and to listen to the Spirit speaking through those problems. There's an insight to develop an appropriate response and a respect to involve others and reflect their concerns. That, that Nobody owns all of that, right? You have gifts that, that the church needs, that the world needs to see you using in service to Christ. Are you using what God has entrusted to you? And, and then the disciples themselves, the, the body, needs to be a part of significant decisions that affect the whole congregation. Did, did you see that going on here, right? This, this is not a top-down hierarchy in the church. The apostles don't say, well, here's how you solve the problem, now go do it. They involve the, the body in this significant decision that's going to take the church in a different direction. There, there are different roles here, for sure, but there's no distinction in terms of, you know, what's more important, what's less important. The apostles didn't pick these seven men, and they didn't just hand off to the congregation the responsibility for picking them and, and then say, well, good luck, and I hope it works out. They, they challenged the congregation to be involved in, you need to discern who are the people that ought to be doing this ministry, and then they authorize those men chosen by the congregation to, to take charge of the task. It's not governing the church by popular vote. It's not the apostles ruling from above. It's the, the leaders and the church coming together around significant decisions that affect the community as a whole. That's, that's amazing. And now, now I said earlier that the distinctive for choosing these men was not that they were going to reflect the community that had been overlooked, but that's actually how it worked out. The whole body of believers, which was almost certainly majority, Aramaic-speaking and Hebrew, chose seven peoples whose names are Greek in origin. Now, it doesn't mean all of them were Greek-speaking Hellenists. Some of these names have been attested historically in uh, the, the Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking congregations of the time, but at least most of the people on this list reflect the community that was being overlooked. Do you still, look at the beautiful picture of the sensitivity and the kindness of the entire body coming together to say, we need to solve the problem for these people who are being overlooked. It's not a problem that's affecting me directly, but I have to care about it because these are members of the family. God grows his church as we respond to needs. That's the, the last thing that we see in verse 7 is the outcome then, the outcome of all this. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke's mention of the priests is interesting and significant because, uh, of course, many of them are now responding to the gospel and repenting and coming to faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, which was a challenge not just to their worldview, but to their occupation, their, their whole identity. 
My identity is doing the sacrifices in the temple and the system that God had in the old covenant. And now they're willing to say, but wow, I can see that's all been fulfilled in Christ. That's amazing how God works and does that. It's a reminder for all of us, a message that we all need to hear, that trusting in the atoning sacrifice and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only merit, the only standing before God that we can ever have and the only one that we ever need. But now many of the priests become faithful to Christ and the threats that have arisen to the church are being superintended by God through his church to become not merely threats, but now opportunities for growth. There, there was not just the opposition from the outside, but now the potential for divisions and rivalry and mistrust within the body. And now, in response to that, the believers come together to say, no, we, we can't let this tear us apart. We have to actually unite around that. What the world needs is the witness of a loving community shaped by God's word. The world needs the witness of a loving community shaped by God's word. We saw in chapters 2 and 4, remember, that, that those believers who were following Jesus from the beginning shared everything in common, all their resources, because they recognized we are one family. And just like in our natural families, we, we own everything together and we share what we have with one another. But what happens when that family is suddenly two or five or ten or a hundred times bigger than you'd expected? You've got to decide whether you're going to continue to be one family and incorporate and love those people and treat everyone as part of the family. There's a willingness here to sacrifice for the sake of others. God did not miraculously increase the amount of resources that was available in the church. He moved the hearts of these people to share what they had more fairly. And that meant that some would give up what they had and get less so that others would get more. A few months ago in our series, looking at the Apostle John's first letter, Pastor Joey said this, love is the willing sacrifice for the sake of others. When do we as humans ever give up power like this? Ever surrender resources like this? When do we hear people's complaints about injustice and go out of our way to sacrifice something ourselves to benefit other people. That is not natural to us. Because the church is a community where we surrender rights and resources and privilege to bless and benefit others. God grows his church as we respond to needs. Well, back to uh, that adjustment to a fourth child. We had to get a new car seat. We had to go back to sleepless nights and changing diapers and using a stroller. But that youngest child, that fourth one, Isabel, she has been such a blessing 
and a joy to us. She is a gift from God. She's different. She's wonderful. She is sweet and loving and thoughtful and kind and generous. She is an encourager. She builds people up. I can look back and say with so much gratitude and praise, I am thankful that God brought that baby into our lives with all the diapers and sleepless nights and crying and temper tantrums and everything that disruption brings. Because family, community, the community of God's people is a blessing. It's an opportunity to grow in love and care for one another. Because God grows his church as we respond to needs. He grows us not just in numbers as happened here, but the word of God increases. It increases in us. And it grows us to look more like Jesus and become a community that grows as we respond to the needs and the challenges that God puts in front of us. Father, we're... So thankful for this picture, this episode in the early life of your church. We ask that you would give us this same heart as your spirit is still at work in us as we learn from and follow their example so that we would be a community that would glorify you as we look beyond ourselves, united by your spirit, to respond to the challenges and the needs that you put around us. Grow us to be people who would respond to the need to use our gifts and service to others, to surrender our gifts and invest them into the lives of others, and, and to grow together in love, to reflect what you are like to a world that needs to see a loving community and hear the transforming message of the gospel of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.